Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to amazing people from around the world. And this time I'm staying in the UK. I am actually speaking to an old friend of mine. Anna Kuklis is the uh, head of organizational development and social value at a, a construction organization. So this is going to be interesting. So we're, I know Anna and I know Anna's philosophy. I know her beliefs. I know the kind of leader she would be. And, um, you know, there's awful lot thrown into the concept of language when it comes to leadership. And I come from, uh, obviously, the policing background where soft language like kind leadership, human-centered leadership, even leadership with love, servant leadership. These were phrases that uh, a lot of people might have balked upon or might have, a lot of people might have cringed. What is it with you, Anna? Is this the kind of phraseology that you feel comfortable using in your workplace? First of all, thank you, Cole, for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I work in quite a masculine industry, um, construction still very male dominated. Um, and my background was more of a performing arts background. So you could say it's a little bit more uh, fluffy in some ways. When I started to experience construction as an industry, um, I could still see those uh, traits of that kind of masculine, quite dominating um, culture, if you like. So for me, I'm very heart-centered, very mm. um, centered in that human leadership. And the words like love, to really love your colleagues and really care about your colleagues might come across as quite uh, fluffy, you might say, in some some instances in, in very corporate, do dominated, male-dominated industries. I, th I think we have to dig down into the language itself. So, you know, mm. ethereally, people might say, oh, love, that's a bit soft. But what does love actually mean? So what's your take on this concept of love? Oh, what a great question. I think really at the heart of it is really, truly accepting someone for who they are and demonstrating real positive regard for their for their being. And on a spiritual level, seeing yourselves as equal partners in that relationship so you see when you describe it like that it doesn't sound so soft and cuddly now does yeah, it? Right? yeah it actually <laughs> sounds like something that you might pick up in a leadership in a leadership bible somewhere you know yeah. i've done a lot of work with uh, john maxwell's teachings and uh, you know he would very often talk about you know leadership is a is an act of love it's a responsibility and if you were to break down that concept of love i think what comes out of it is you've got to be able to connect with people. You've got to see people where they are. You've got to understand people and human beings 
for me, that's human-centered leadership. You know, I just use a different terminology, but essentially it means that you're going to do the very best for the people that you have the responsibility of leading. Definitely. And I think it's really about caring for the individual and being very present with that individual when you are with them. Um, very often as leaders, people can get very busy and it's about really slowing it down and being really in the moment with this, with the person. Um, and I suppose love gets mixed up in terms of language because we often think of love as being something that's romantic. Um, but actually having that positive regard and that connection for someone bonds people together. And there's a place for it in leadership and in, in organisations to show that care and that real desire to, to unlock someone else's potential and support them. I, I love the rhetoric and the language that you're using now. So you, you're in this illustrious position, really, of being head of organisational development. You really... Without wanting to scare you, Anna, I know that you've not been in the post very long. Yeah. But as head of organisational development, there's an awful lot on your shoulders. I'm guessing you already know that uh, in terms of driving the structure of the organisation and, you know, the, the learning, the setting of the strategy, the people element of it all. There's a lot in on your shoulders in that at that level. How do you feel about that? It's really interesting that you say that because a lot of people have said that to me you know you heavy burden lots on your shoulders the business but for some reason i i don't feel that way i don't feel that burden i think i feel so excited about um being very present with the board and what they want to achieve and its people mm. and and for me that isn't a heavy burden because ultimately the task is to be in that moment unlocking what is in front of you and sh really just seeing what is it that these people need so that I don't feel like I have to come in and create something. It's more about how do I get present to listening and understanding and reflecting back to this organisation and its people, what they're saying and how they need to shift and move to be able to be high performing. So for me, it's not a burden or, or a pressure. It's a real honour. It's a real um, blessing to be able to do that. You see, I, I just love where you're coming from. You know, the, you're using the word of honour. It's, it's an honour to be in that position. And I do think being in leadership is a privilege. It's an absolute privilege. It's not a God-given right. And, you know, isn't there that old saying that uh, with great authority comes great responsibility? I think there's something around that. And that's how I sort of saw leadership and you know, there's also the phrase, uh, the, the topic of servant leadership, how a lead, leader is all about serving the people that they're supposed to be leading. Uh, and for me, it really is sort of looking at leadership from the different end of a telescope to where others might be uh, looking at leadership. Uh, and you either then therefore go down the hierarchical leadership path where, you know, you're expecting people to do what you ask of them to do because of the status that you hold or alternatively you inspire people to do what they want to do because they believe in what needs to be done what is the difference for you in terms of the styles of leadership required to achieve either or well firstly i'm going to be a bit controversial and say that um i don't think there's one way to lead okay so they all have their merit um their every leader will have their own unique style and their preference so a hierarchical leadership style isn't my natural way of being as a leader 
But for some, that may work. And for some people, that may work. Um, so I think it's first, first and foremost, recognising what type of leadership is needed in what moment. And with that, it's about being very human-centred and understanding what that person needs from you. Because what I find sometimes when I've led teams is someone might be very, um, might want more guidance and more support and a bit more of that, that coach, that more of that direction. Others might find that really limiting. So it's how do you flex in that moment? Yeah. And I think the other thing that you've said there is it's in the moment as well. So Mm -hmm. I call it leadership styles and the fluidity of leadership styles. So, I mean, I work with emotional intelligence. There's six leadership styles. Two of those are about uh, dissonance, about pushing people towards somewhere. And four of those are about pulling people towards you or towards somewhere. Uh, so that direction would be about coercive leadership style. Do that, do that, do that, go there, go there. And there are times when you need to do that, you know, in a fast dynamic situation. Uh, for me, in a crisis management situation, that's exactly the language that I would use. But what I love is that you've also said that you still need to be a human-centered leader in doing that. Even when you're doing that, you still need to be human-centered. And that, I think, is is uh, is, is an art more than anything else. Because it's quite easy to get lost in that coercive leadership style, isn't it? I think you're touching on something really important here um, because often you can see in a hierarchical structure where you have that kind of coercive directive leadership that people, the the word that I often hear people say is that it's very task management, I feel like I'm a robot, people forget I'm a human being. And actually you can be very powerful being very directive but nurturing and caring. And those things can go together. But for some reason, I'm not really sure why. Maybe it's that people just go um, into the humdrum of the day that they forget to ask, to say the little things. How are you doing? Are you okay? What's going on for you in your world right now? Getting that connection there with the individual and then being quite directive. Okay, this is what needs to happen. Play back what you've heard. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah, it's that makes perfect sense and and in order for us to be that uh, we have to be switched on all the time we can't go into like an automatic mode uh, and you know remain in that coercive element and telling people what to do we have to be aware we have to have that that radar switched on constantly to to i guess to feel the vibrations around us to pick up on the energy from individuals to sense the emotions of other people and that for me is what highly intelligent, emotionally intelligent people do. You know, from a single leadership uh, uh, perspective, that's absolutely critical. But what about like from an organisational perspective? I mean, what is it that you would like to do with the organisation that you're at right now to to get that culture uh, that is about being human-centred? What, what are the key elements, do you think? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, um, and you touched on it um the hierarchy element of an organization very often you can see that it's very top down um, but actually i think one of the most empowering things you can do is to flip it on its head so actually it's bottom up um, so your people are empowered and and with that is around giving people autonomy clear boundaries clear vision clear goal of where they're going the part that they play in the business to to create an impact in the world um and 
within that, then you start to pull away some of the behaviours that you need to create and the and a sense of belonging, one team ethos, so that everyone's pulling together in the right direction. So I think it's a mix of structural change and it's also um, looking at what behavioural things need to shift and change and taking a deeper dive on what those elements are and creating creating a, a culture that is aligned to that business's mission and vision of where it wants to go. And, and of course, the values. Yeah. You know, and, and being very clear about the values. And I, I mean, I go and work with all sorts of organisations. I'll walk into their training rooms or meeting rooms and they've got all these pretty posters all over the walls with all their values and mission statements. But then I ask myself, are you truly living those out? And, you know, so it's it's about bringing those values to life, isn't it? And And, and then testing, I guess. Are the people in your organisation living those values out as individuals and as a collective? And if they're not, what is it that you could do as an organisation to get people more aligned to your values? And what would the world look like if if you were all working from the same perspective with the same values towards the same direction? And I call that the functionality of organisation. So one of the key things that I pick up on from a lot of organisations is that there's this absence of trust. And if you haven't got trust in an organisation, then you're really going to struggle to bring about change. You're going to struggle to get peak performance from people. You're going to struggle to, 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 to uh, you know, uh, to inspire people to do even more. And they will probably just work to the minimum. And, you know, we hear of this philosophy of quiet quitting uh, where people only do what's absolutely needed of them and they won't do any more. And I think they're doing that because of this absence of trust in the organisation. They've lost trust in the organisation for a whole host of reasons. Um, So for me, building trust um, is very, very important. But you've got to live your values out to, to build trust. But from a leadership perspective, building trust is also about being transparent, showing your teams, your people that you're actually human yourself, that you are vulnerable, that you that you are making mistakes and all of these kind of things. It's interesting you mentioned that because actually one of the things that I'm working with, with the organisation that I'm looking, uh, working with at the moment is around trust. So a big part of the strategy is about building trust and building opportunity for, for its people. Um, I think trust is a complex one, but ultimately for me, my own personal opinion is that first and foremost, there needs to be vulnerability and honesty and that transparency, but creating a a space in the business where people really feel safe to be open and honest. And I loved what you said there about what's the truth of the situation in terms of what's going on in the organization? Because a lot of organizations, they love their slogans and they love saying that things are going really well, but actually do your senior leaders know what's really going on when they're not there, what's being said when they're away? Because that is actually what your culture really is. Absolutely. It's what's happening when that door's shut and people aren't listening. So, where do we start with trust? Probably first and foremost, tearing off the tearing off the plaster to say where are we actually really now? Absolutely, uh, and you know I've worked with some senior teams where you know we've looked at building functionality into those teams, not to say that they were dysfunctional, but to increase the level of functionality, and 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 the work always has to start with foundation of trust. So okay, 
So if we want to build more trust into our teams, what will that mean? Well, if we have more trust, then they were more likely to have healthy debate, healthy conflict, where we can come to that meeting table, thrash out an idea, and people feel comfortable talking outside of that group think, outside of that echo chamber, and introducing some really creative solutions, creative perspectives. Okay, if that's the case, then... When we do eventually agree on a decision, you have a higher likelihood of everybody being more committed. And if people are more committed, then people are more likely to hold each other to account. And if you've got this healthiness going through on, on those four elements, then you're, everyone's more likely to be pulling in the same direction. So that's it for me. But how do we build that trust? Uh, it, it, it's really about how human are we with each other in the, within that senior team? Get it right in that senior team, then you can get it right with the rest of the organization. But you've got to get it right in that senior team. And I mean, I don't, I don't know, the amount of those small senior teams I've seen that are so dysfunctional because they're just falling out with each other, don't trust each other, don't believe each other, uh, are fighting against each other behind closed doors. And you think, goodness gracious, how is your organization surviving with you behaving like that? The question pops into my mind, why does that happen? Because it's probably not just those or the organisation that you're working with. There's loads of organisations like this. And um, I suppose something that I've noticed very often is ego plays a part. And you see it even now on the world stage. You look at the politics and everything that's going on and the, the day-to-day media. Ego seems to step into that boardroom and actually that needs to come out of the space because otherwise there's conflicting priorities. You're not thinking about what's the good of everybody here. Um, so perhaps that is something that adds to that dysfunction because people are trying to sort of save their own backs or whatnot. I know it's quite a upfront and honest thing to say. No, I think you're right. There's a, a fascinating piece of work done by a guy called Dr. Carl Albrecht. I talk about this an awful lot. And he talks about the five supreme fears. He says, you know, every single human being will have these five supreme fears at some level or another. And, you know, um, he names these fears. He says, but you will have your own name for them. You will translate it to a language or a sentence or a phrase that you use an awful lot. So he says, you know, like the first fear is the fear of death, the fear of extinction. And everybody has this fear of death at some level or another. Some people are more fearful than mm -hmm. others. But it could translate into, you know, I, I hate, I would not go skydiving. Why? Because I think I'm going to die. I don't like flying because I think I'm going to die. And the other one, he says, what was the other one? Uh, the fear of physically being hurt. Uh, and there it's, uh, you know, it translates, could translate into, oh, I'm scared of spiders, I'm scared of snakes, I'm scared of rats because they're going to bite me. Uh, and then he says, you, you have this fear of loss of autonomy. And loss of autonomy is a fascinating one because... That could translate into, oh, I, I, I'm, I don't want to be micromanaged because I have no control. I don't want to move in with you as much as I love you. I, would, I don't want to move in with you because I lose control. I don't want to commit to a marriage because I lose control. I don't want to get into an elevator because I'm claustrophobic. So it's that loss of control. But the top two are probably what play a part, I think, in organisations, particularly in those, uh, those tight-knit groups that we're talking about here. Uh, and, and one is fear of rejection. And that's where you feel that people will see what you say as being stupid. So consequently, you don't say it. Uh, they may ridicule you for things or ideas that you might profess. And, and consequently, it's better off to stay safe and not say them at all. And the, the final one is the fear of the ego death, which is exactly what you're talking about. So a lot of people do a lot of things that look so egocentric, but actually what they're doing is they're doing it out of a fear of ego death. 
I'm going to look stu- stupid. People will be judging me, etc., 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 etc. So consequently, they put on this alter ego, if you like, this false persona to blend in or to stand out as they see fit. So I find it fascinating. I don't think ego ego is something necessarily that uh, that is a bad thing, but it's a it's a it's it's something that we misconstrue, miscon uh, you know, control poorly. Uh, I think I think it overtakes us more than anything else. Yeah, I actually as you're saying that um I start to think uh, of something that um that may come into this and I think often people that get to the top of their organisations have been very good at what they do or they've been great technical experts and mm. they've raised, they, they move up that hierarchy quite quickly. So once they get to that top level, it's what, what what's my purpose now? What do I do as a leader? And then it's, okay, well, there is that, that alter ego death, if you like, but how do you shift it and change it to now become a leader that empowers and grows the organisation in a slightly different way, that it's not just about your technical expertise or your technical leadership, but this is about how you unlock humans and coach people beneath you. Yeah, I mean, for me, you get to a certain level in leadership and your leadership should always be about creating other leaders. And, you know, there was a, a quote that I once learned around about 1990, and I've stayed with this quote and it says the mark of an outstanding leader is not how good a leader you are, it's how many leaders you create. And and that has sort of been a quote that stayed in the very heart of who I am, you know, the very essence of me being a leader. So I'm always sort of uh, inspiring others and helping others to become leaders. And I think that's what you need to do at that level, isn't it? Because at that level, you're not actually doing the work. You're not hands-on doing the work. Your job and your role is about influencing those who are doing the work. So you've got to get good at influencing. And if you're good at influencing, that means you've got to have the ability to build trust, build rapport, build communication, uh, to have a genuine interest in people, to understand uh, without that sense of ego that uh, you are serving the people that you are leading as well. But this, So this is quite a curious, uh, curious one because, um, I mean, you work with lots of organisations. Do you see that people at that higher level have those skills and, and that, they are people-centric? You know, by and large, everybody that I've met at that level, at the executive level, uh, tends to think like that. Mm. Now, here's the, here's the anomaly for me. In every single organisation I've uh, ever really worked with, that you have three levels of the organisation as I see it. So from a leadership perspective, you have three levels uh, as I see it. So you have the executive. So think of the executive as like the brain of the organization. They come up with these ideas. They're really committed. You know, they may well have a genuine commitment to create a, an incredible culture within the organization. But they're not, they're only influencers now. They're not the doers. The doers are the next level down, your directors. So they have got to get the directors bought into their idea of what it is that they want to achieve. Now, this is where the first mistake occurs. If we don't communicate, if we don't take the time to build a trust between the executive and the director level, that senior leadership level, then whatever comes out in terms of the communication is never really going to be 100%. So when you communicate a significant change like this of culture within your organisation, if your directors don't really trust you, then I don't think those directors will fully engage with 
what it is that you're trying to achieve. So they may go back with a lucid, yes, yeah, we'll do this. But when they communicate it to the people that matter, the, the, those at the front line, those leaders at the front line who are in control, if you like, of the day-to-day happenings of the organisation, that communication from the executive team will be very disjointed. It, it will be diluted. Uh, so consequently, I see so many organisations where the executive arm of the organisation have these incredible ideas, but they also have these massive frustrations. Uh, why is it that we come up with these amazing ideas, but they never really translated in, uh, d- down to the ground? They, they never really come out as the way we want them to. And I think that's about the, the culture that you build from the top to the bottom of the organisation Everybody has to be brought in on the journey and your management of change has to be at the at its very best. If you think this is a high enough priority of change, then you need to deal with that change in the best possible way that you can. Yeah, and also unlocking people's spin on what that means to them. Absolutely. And that's what cognitive diversity is all about, isn't it? You know, I'm, I, I, I've done a lot of work around diversity for you know many decades and I get really frustrated around diversity that organizations uh, want to chase this target, that target, the other target, you know, X percent black, uh, X percent white and X percent female and LGBT and so forth and so on. Uh, and my, my, my question always is, and I, sometimes I feel, should I say it, shouldn't I say it, is if you got, if you met all your percentages in your organization, you had X percent uh, female, X percent black and X percent this protected characteristic or that, is that going to change the thinking of your organization? And that's the big question. Because if it doesn't, then you're doing one of two things. You're either just ticking boxes and out of desperation to meet those targets, you're just fishing in the pond that is the closest pond to you, i.e. people who think like you, eat like you, probably been to the same school as you. You're not having the courage to go out and find people who think differently to you. And that's the real challenge. Cognitive diversity is what it's all about. I would far rather have a white, straight, heterosexual male who has travelled the world, knows people inside out, than somebody who is black, has stayed in one location uh, and thinks like everybody else and doesn't really move the organisation forward. That's where I would probably rather be. So it's it's re- it's really challenging because, you know, we've been told for so long that the the majority is a white heterosexual male, and they probably will be. But I think the real challenge is getting people who think differently. I totally agree with you. And and when I started to go on a journey around diversity with uh, diversity inclusion with the business, there was a big, um, there was a lot of movement around how do we get 50-50 women? How do we raise awareness on on our, our stats around race and ethnicity? And actually, I started to realise part of the job with diversity and inclusion is or a critical part is how do you create a safe culture to embrace difference yes and that's it that's it isn't it that's the crux of it all yeah for healthy for healthy uh, discussions and it's it does worry me i'll be honest cool it worries me that um we have what i think is a bit of cancel culture going on now in the world where if you don't believe what i believe I'm going to cancel you, but actually... It's counterproductive. It's counterproductive. Exactly. It doesn't shift your way of thinking. It doesn't Mm. shift the way of being. So you want to create environments where people feel 
like they can um that they that there is a real benefit to having someone that has an opposing view to them and that by connecting together you can work together and create something even more special because why would you want just someone that thinks like you all the time there is no progression in that is there where are you moving the organization there's no creativity no innovation yeah there's no freshness you know exactly but in order for you to get there, you've got to create that culture. So it all boils down to culture yet again, doesn't it? You've got to create a culture where people feel valued, appreciated, heard and seen. And they feel psychologically safe enough to express a different view. And if you get that right, then the demographic diversity looks after itself. Mm. And you just got to have the courage, you got to have the conviction to understand that. Get the culture right. Then people from the minority ethnic communities, people, you know, women or men, whatever your under-representation might be, LGBT community, they will automatically look at your organisation and say, hey, wow, that's a great place to work. I'm going to go and work there. So it's sort of, again, looking at something from the other end of the telescope. And I think sometimes we continue for decade upon decade upon decade to continue to beat around the same bush in the same way rather than saying to yourself hmm let's not let's try something different because this is clearly not working <laughs> but you sort of smile when you see organizations still doing the same thing that they were doing 20 years ago yeah because actually with the diversity piece it's not just um, the protected characteristics that people talk about that actually say have you built an a team to go out and and do this job at the best level and at the highest performance and that that requires you to think about neurodiversity. And that is, isn't that the complexity of the beautiful human spirit? Uh, and human-centered leadership is really about understanding human, human beings. Uh, and where I struggle with protected characteristics is the homogenization of groupings. So it's almost mm -hmm. assuming that anybody who is not white English or white British thinks the same. How ridiculous a concept is that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or all women think exactly the yeah. same or all LGBT people think exactly the same. It's so ridiculous beyond, beyond thought. So for me, diversity is a very, very simple concept in so much as every single person thinks differently. Everyone's had a different journey. Everyone has different potential to bring to the team. Everyone thinks differently. Now you decide what it is that you need in your organisation to move it forward. And you bring in the right people who can who can do that for you, even if they think differently to you. Definitely. And I always use the example of um, growing up in a household. So I'm one of four. Um, and uh, it used to make me, well, it made us chuckle. We'd go to school and our, our teachers would say to me, my teacher would say to me, you and your brother are chalk and cheese. But you've, <laughs> you've both grown up in the exact same house, but you have different experiences, different memories, different um perspectives on life you have been brought up in the same house um so it is how do you bring that richness and and it's something that I, I would in in businesses what i would love to see more is people bringing their real authentic self oh goodness i mean if that feeds into the whole trust thing again you cannot have trust if people are wearing masks at work you know, and so how do you create a culture where people, again, people feel psychologically safe enough to demonstrate their vulnerability? Because authenticity, vulnerability are too inter inter interlinked. And, you know, um, for someone to show up to work and say, hey, I don't know how to do this, or I'm not very good at this, or I'm having a bad time at home, or whatever it might be, 
these are human issues and the complexity of being a human being is is the courageous step that I think most organizations need to take to bring about in their culture. That's where it is. It's interesting, isn't it, that so many people do come in with a work mask and a professional persona. And perhaps mm. that stems back to that fear of being rejected, perhaps at a deeper level. Am I going to be accepted by this organization um, for the way that I think and the way that I am? And there is a professional code within a business. You know, there is the unspoken culture. How do I fit in with that? that I'm accepted. So when I teach emotional intelligence, that's my speciality. Um, I work at 26 competency levels. So I break it right down to a granular level. And we run all these programs in all sorts of organizations. And one of them uh, is around having your radar switched on to truly understand what goes on in your team, in your organization, in your community. Not what it says necessarily in the policies, not what it says necessarily on the walls, but how do things really work? Not, not, not with a, a judgmental head on, just understand it. Because when you understand how things truly work, then you're less likely to be surprised by them, frustrated by them. You will be able to navigate your way through the organization. And on the issue of uh, clothing, um, I've actually had a conversation with a leadership consultant the other day. He said, you know what, since I've gone back into face-to-face, I've walked into organizations and they're saying, hey, can you not wear your three-piece suit again like you used to do? Yeah, isn't that so hilarious? And, and I, I used to wear a three-piece suit whenever I delivered training. Now I find I've got like canvas shoes on. I've got my tra- I've got my, um, uh, my my jeans on, but I cannot not wear a shirt and a blazer, but I won't wear a tie. <laughs> and I'm thinking all of these sh- uh, suits that I've got are redundant now because people have shifted. People are thinking differently now, you know? I think so, particularly since the pandemic where, you know, we're all virtual and we're now seeing into people's lives. And it was so fascinating because those first few months people would put on their filter and, um, you know. Or switch the camera off. Yeah, or exactly. Or they'd be so worried. Whereas now, you know, you're seeing the real depths of a human being. And we've all realised we're actually not that different from each other, to be honest, you know. Exactly. We all have bad hair days. We all have those days where, you know, you might have a mark on your top or something like that. We, we, we're all living in the same world, you know. That, that really is what human-centred leadership is all about. I want to wish you all the luck in your new role. Uh, I think that you're going to work miracles in your organization but it sounds like it's a great organization anyway they're having the right conversation that's the important thing Mm. and uh, if i can support you in that journey in any way just shout out but uh, thanks for coming on to the podcast today thanks so much cool take care thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on linkedin take care have a great day